if I sell one bag, I can put it on my LinkedIn that I'm an entrepreneur. (laughs) And like, that's all that really matters, right? Who even cares about the rest of it? (laughs) So that was my goal. I was like one bag to a stranger. That was my big thing was if we pack it and we make a label and it looks cool and I've done it, it's a side project, tick, done. Then I can just go back to my little life and, you know, I've explored. And it sold out in a week. And I didn't even have the supplier's details out of all the 50. I didn't, I didn't remember which one it was because I was like, I never thought we need to order again. <laughs> hey, welcome to Ladyland, a podcast by Lady Brains, where we chat to ambitious women about what it takes to become an overnight success. Huge spoiler alert. The overnight success does not exist. We're your hosts, Caitlin, Anna, and Neva. Now get comfy, fellow Lady Brains, and ride with us to Ladyland. Sarah Holloway thought she had her life planned out. She'd studied arts law, graduated top of her class, secured a job at a top-tier law firm in mergers and acquisitions, and soon after had received an offer to become an associate to the Chief Justice of the High Court, a position she'd been working towards for the previous six years. At the very same time her career was taking off, Sarah was busy launching her side biz, Much Maiden, which was born out of her recognising a gap in the Australian market for matcha-based products. By 2015, and after a year of selling her products locally, it all became real when she was approached by US retailer Urban Outfitters with an order of 10,000 units. Sarah was forced to make a really huge life decision, accept the high court position or quit her job and fulfill the order. Fast forward to now and Matcha Maiden is stocked globally. Sarah and her team have opened a vegan restaurant called Matcha Milk Bar and the business was recently accepted into the Chibani Incubator Program, the very first of its kind here in Australia. We began our chat by asking Sarah about her childhood. Looking back, I think I would now call it entrepreneurial, but at the time didn't really know where I was heading. I've always been one part really nerdy, loved books, loved reading, loved maths and all that kind of um, mental gymnastics kind of work. And then I've also been a real arty-farty creative. So I was a ballerina when I was younger. I was always dancing around, learning instruments, painting, not being very good at it, but I made a very amazing canvas out of my original childhood bedroom wall, which was great fun. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, that pretty much continued all the way through school. I always had my really academic focused side. And then I did all of the extracurricular activities across sport, music, dance, performing arts. And I think that's looking back what made me quite entrepreneurial is that I've always had lots of different interests. I've never been purely focused just on one thing and known forever that that's what I wanted to do. I've always been really agile across change, different schools, different environments, different countries, different cultures. And yeah, that continued up even up to uni when I knew that I wanted to study law. I didn't think that that was necessarily going to be to be a lawyer. So I kind of hedged my bets and did arts law and then continued languages and exchanges and extracurricular For the longest time, I still didn't know that translated to entrepreneurship, but now looking back, I'm like, yep, that was me. So you went and studied law. What was your experience at uni like? And then how did you transition into a career after that? It was an amazing experience at uni. I was at Monash Uni, which uh, is very, very supportive of travel and coming out as a global student and not just studying, you know, your one discipline. So doing arts law in particular made that a really great experience. It was a five and a half year degree, which to some people sounds really long, but I think that actually gave me a lot of time to mature and figure out what I want to do, have a little bit of part-time work experience, do some travel, find myself and um, figure out what I was good at and what I wasn't, you know, as good at. But with law, the professional pathway starts quite early in your uni process. So I was applying for clerkships to get a grad position to then become qualified pretty much from second year. And at Monash in the law faculty, they're really, really supportive. So you you know the process from early on, which has changed a bit now. But uh, back then, we were lined up from second and third year to position ourselves for the opportunities that we wanted to graduate into. And it all went to plan. I clerked at the firms that I really wanted to get into, and I'd positioned myself to ultimately graduate with a grad position at a firm that was going to be quite international. So I could, again, keep everything quite broad and travel with the firm and keep my law really broad rather than specialising. 
it was obviously very competitive coming out, probably not as competitive as today. I don't envy anyone graduating right now, but it was still quite hard to get into the top tier firms. But I'd done a clerkship at King Edward Mallison's and that had gone really well. So I ended up securing a grad position quite early again. So in about fourth year, and then I had one and a half years of heaven, just knowing that (laughs) (laughs) I had a job lined up Uh, in my arts degree. I still had the capacity to travel. So I went to Paris and studied for six months there. I did an exchange to China as well and studied there to kind of have a bit of East and West in the languages, like again, spreading, hedging the bets and spreading widely. And I ended up doing an honours thesis as well. And knowing that I didn't have to really focus on commercial law just to get in because I already had the job lined up. I ended up doing a medical negligence thesis and just kind of explored all the different areas of things that I found interesting. And it was really great experience. And then actually quite easy to transition into work after that, obviously to the body, the whole having to be somewhere all day, every day was a little bit difficult. And going from having a third of the year off and thinking that still wasn't enough holidays to suddenly having (laughs) four weeks of annual leave. (laughs) But I think as soon as I got into the firm, I I realised what law in practice is like, which is completely different to studying. Still a lot of mental gymnastics, a lot of potential for growth, so many different areas you could practice in, but not a lot of scope for that creative fire within that had been around since I was a kid. So I thought I'd stick it out, get qualified and just see where it took me with no real idea of what the ultimate exit plan would be or how far away that would be, but definitely didn't think it would be as soon as it ended up coming around. So how did it come about? I think like a lot of big business ideas that come out of the blue, it wasn't really a planned thing. I think a lot of people want the lifestyle or want to be an entrepreneur because it sounds amazing and they reverse engineer the lifestyle and then figure out an idea. And that's a really hard push and can take a really long time. But for us, it was the complete opposite, had no plans, literally fell upon a gap in the market that we were suffering ourselves. So it all came out of our own selfish needs and then sort of accidentally turned into a very exciting business. So in my first year, in um, probably a quite an early indication that I wasn't 110% fulfilled at the firm. I took a month off, which is very unheard of for a law grad in first year. Mm-hmm. And Nick and I went to Rwanda to help build some schools um, out in the Mohanga province. His company, he has a digital agency. He'd been sponsoring the Youth Generation Against Poverty for quite a long time. And they invited us on this field expedition as part of it. And it was the most incredible and humbling and eye-opening experience, um, but also landed me with a parasite. I brought home with me and I ended up losing quite a lot of weight. I think I got down to 42 kilos or something. And in typical A-type lawyer fashion, didn't take any time off, went straight back to work, straight back to the 20-hour days and was just pushing through thinking, oh, great, lost a few pounds. Like, this is awesome. (laughs) (laughs) And not realising that I was burning myself out into um, some very bad adrenal fatigue and I ended up locked in the bathroom at work one day, just my body just caved and, yeah, I I didn't go back for a couple of weeks. And that was when um, I went to see a naturopath. I obviously went to see my GP as well and they were like, you have to give up coffee. That's one of the things that's Mm -hmm. stopping you from getting better because you're having 10 cups a day of this really intense substance that's you know, sending you, I was getting jitters, I was getting crashes and panic attacks. And my adrenals were so depleted as it was that they were like, you you can't take this. So you're going to have to cut out all those kind of stimulating substances, obviously rest and do a lot of other things Mm -hmm. as well. But to me at the time, I was like, this is the end of my life as a functioning human being. What do I do without coffee? Like, (laughs) this is my life. (laughs) But then I got sent to Hong Kong with the firm on a couple of deals over there. And I always think the universe has such an interesting way of figuring things out. Mm. So matcha over there is really widely spread. It's not the new buzzword that it seems in the West. It's been around for centuries as part of the ancient Japanese tea ritual. And it was everywhere in Hong Kong, really easy to get. And I sort of thought, oh, my gosh, there's a source of healthier caffeination that still gives you a really sustained energy boost but doesn't send me into a complete breakdown. (laughs) So it has half the caffeine of coffee. So it still gives you a considerable boost, but it has a unique amino acid in it called L-theanine, which makes the caffeine slow release into your bloodstream and also works on your gamma and alpha waves in your brain. So it gives you this beautiful, calm source of energy. And I thought, oh my gosh, I don't have to be that weird person that goes out for coffee mm-hmm. with everyone and orders a water. I can actually have a hot beverage with everyone <laughs> and get a good boost of energy. Um, and this is just amazing. 
And because it's in a powdered form, it was a lot more versatile. So I started to get really adventurous. And other than my matcha lattes, I would put it in salad dressing and bliss balls to take to work. And I just couldn't believe that I'd never discovered it before because I love green tea and I love green tea flavor. And I was always quite health and well-being focused. And I knew every, I thought I knew every superfood under the sun, but just stumbled upon this amazing source of energy and antioxidants. It has 137 times the antioxidants of regular green tea and 10 times the nutritional content just because it's so dense. And then my partner, Nick, came over to visit and he was using it in his pre and post workouts because the level of caffeine gives you quite a solid metabolic boost, which is amazing. And then we came back to Australia and just couldn't find it anywhere. In T2, they had a very, very expensive ceremonial grade in a mm-hmm. tiny tin, but not enough. You know, it's not, it wasn't accessible or affordable for daily use. And then if you did want something a little bit more cost-effective, it would be in an Asian grocery with no English labelling, often mixed with sugar or brown rice protein or some kind of other additive. But there was no middle ground that was organic, that could be seen on a health food shelf or even a supermarket shelf. And we just thought, why? It's The health food market in Australia was booming. There were green smoothies on everyone's desk. You know, you couldn't go past a health food person without them talking about kale or, you know, green smoothies. Mm. So we ordered some online that was a really nice middle ground blend and you could only get it in bulk. And we were like, oh, we're going to have quite a lot of powder left over. What are we going to do with all that powder? And... I thought if I sold one bag to a stranger, I can put it on my LinkedIn that I'm an entrepreneur and then tick, (laughs) go back to work (laughs) and yay, yay, new thing for the resume. So we decided we'd do it as a little side project, mainly just to fuel our own needs, but then also just to have an excuse to spend some more time together and give my creative side some fuel just to keep it going for the next, you know, couple of months or year or whatever. And we did a social media launch for three weeks getting ready for turning on the online store and thinking no one's going to buy anything. Mm. But we ended up selling out in a week and it was so soon that I didn't even have the supplier's details to reorder because I just never thought we'd ever need it for 10 kilos, which at the time seemed like an enormous amount of powder considering that two grams is a serve. And it's just been matcha madness since then. It literally grew from us packing it in our friend's commercial kitchen in the middle of summer, in our undies and shower caps, like breaking bad, but green (laughs) 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 to realizing six months afterwards, we got into urban outfitters across the U S and I sort of thought, how did they find this couple packing in their undies in Melbourne? But it turned out uh, they really wanted us to create a custom sized packet for across their beauty and wellness sections. And I resigned the next day and that was two and a half years ago. And it's just continued to be I think we like to say we're blazing a bright green trail so how important was the that three-week launch on social media like how did you set it up what did you do it was at the absolute sole form of marketing that we used uh, pretty much for I mean even until now it's been our main source of marketing until the second year it was the only thing we did Mm. and for that first three weeks we had 10,000 followers by the time we actually launched. So it gave us an audience that was targeted, free, engaged, excited, not limited uh, geographically either. And it just was so easy to target the demographic that you wanted because we were posting content of either samples of what the powder was going to be or similar kind of smoothie bowls or the recipes that we were going to end up incorporating. Back then there wasn't an algorithm, so it was a lot easier to get traction really quickly. I mean, you can still do it now, but back then I definitely (laughs) found it it a lot easier. (laughs) But it just meant we could build an audience to launch to because otherwise we would have just put up an online store and then not been able to tell anyone about it. And it meant that we'd had suspense, we had excitement, we didn't actually release what the product was going to be either. We kind of leaked uh, strategic little facts about the antioxidants or the metabolism boosting or the immunity. And then, yeah, it meant that there was a direct link to the online store as soon as we launched. And it was just so effective. And did you build your online store or did you have some help? I do keep Nick around for a reason. (laughs) (laughs) I knew knew he was there for a reason. (laughs) Nick has a creative agency that was uh, able to build out the website and all the e-commerce platform and do a lot of the SEO and all the back end of coding everything in so that it all worked um, effectively. And he also did all the branding and graphic design and we worked on the brand voice together. And it also really helped at the beginning to have those kind of skills. And then Mm. my legal background meant that I could do the corporate structuring and set us up 
correctly from the beginning. And I also happen to love being artistic and doing photography and doing recipes and cooking. So between the two of us, we managed to get up and running without really much capital at all, which is so useful. You have to try and keep as much in-house as you can when you begin just to keep costs down. And also because you're so passionate about it, you want to infuse yourself into everything that you do. And in the very beginning, how long did it take for you to get the business up and running? Was it a quick process or was it more drawn out? It was actually pretty quick for us. I think once we had the idea, it was a little bit slow to decide that we were actually going to do something with it. And I always say, I've got so many quotes. You'll probably hear quite a few through this episode. I love quotes. And one of them is, done is better than perfect. And another is, a year from now, you'll wish you started today. And I obviously didn't listen to my own advice back then because at the time I was so, you know, you get so racked with self-doubt. Also, everyone's busy. You've got so much going on. So we had the idea and then we just kind of sat on it for a little while. But once we hit go, I think we were sitting at a cafe and we drew the logo on a serviette, which actually we still have, and it's very similar to the original logo. And we just decided, we're like, we're going to order right now because once we have that 10 kilos arrive on our doorstep, we're going to have to do something with it. And that kicked everything into gear. So you kind of have to push yourself Mm. off the cliff to make everything else start happening. And once that happened, because also we wanted to preserve the shelf life, we went straight into overdrive. And I think we locked ourselves in for a weekend and did all the logistical, like what's the equipment we're going to need? What are the registrations? What venue are we going to need to pack? What kind of labeling? All of that stuff. We did that in like a very intense 48 hour period. And then we did the three, you know, we started the Instagram straight away. We did the three-week little like lead-up period. And during that teaser period, we were doing all the things in the back end to make sure we had all the stock packed, all the labels put on, all the use-by dates. And then we just launched. And it just started from there. And we definitely figured out a lot of stuff (laughs) along the way. But I'm looking back really glad that we just went straight into it because otherwise you just give yourself too much time to talk yourself out of it. So you've been mixing and packing the green powder yourself. At what point did you and Nick think, hmm, we should probably start outsourcing or hiring some help? I think it was after I went full-time, that's when I started to take it really seriously and stop thinking of it as just a hobby or a, a little side hustle that was an experiment. I was like, wow, I've got to make my living out of this. And it took a little while to know what was the first thing to delegate. That's really hard because you've gone from doing everything yourself to being like, if I'm going to pay someone with the very, very small amount of capital that you have at the beginning, what is going to add the most value? What is the stuff that, you know, it's not only me that can do it. What can I delegate first? We're still actually really lean. There's really only myself, Nick, my mum's full-time now, and we have a permanent part-timer, Ange, who's absolutely amazing and a very great all-rounder, and we outsource everything else. So there's a very, very small team, and that's been the same since the beginning. We knew at the six-month mark that I was going to go full-time, and then it took me a couple of months to sort of realise what my working style was. You know, the first couple of days I was like, what do I do? do all day like <laughs> I, I just so gone, much their time <laughs> yeah I'd gone from such a rigid environment and just fitting it all in at mm. between 10 o'clock and midnight to like having all this time to structure my days and it was very much just treading water for the first couple of weeks and then I'd say it was a couple of months in that I was like okay this is what I'm doing this is my finance department in my brain this is my logistics department this is shipping this is you know and you figure it out slowly as you go along one of the things I think is So many people want to set up all their departments and get all their staff and have a big team and have an office and have all these amazing things set up from the beginning. And it's all well and good and it can, you know, set you up really well to have the right team, equipment and environment. But at the same time, you've got such limited capital at the beginning that you can almost sink yourself straight away by putting too much into those things and not enough into just getting the product out there. So I'm glad I kind of hesitated before getting too big of a team early on because I could have used all the help, but we did keep it really lean and I I continued to do most of it until even now. Sometimes I'm like, why am I doing this? (laughs) But then it's also nice that you're, you know, really into the grunt work and still on the ground. So how do you structure your day if you're the one doing basically everything? It's very difficult. I um, really enjoyed the lack of structure in the first couple of years, just going from such a rigid environment to being able to change between things based on urgency or, uh, and also getting a bit of variety through the day. But I found very quickly that it's a blessing and a burden. Not having structure means that you actually have no boundaries. So 
Nick and I lived together and worked together and that was really difficult. We didn't have a date for like two years. We just, our pillow talk was bass and, you know, <laughs> <laughs> receipts <reminds> and, <laughs> yeah, and um, personally, you know, I didn't, I just thought I'd have all the time in the world moving into a wellness business that I'd mm. be the, the picture of wellness but I stopped going to yoga I stopped doing all those little things because there was no boundary between my business and my personal life so I had no structure I just went from the, you know the top of the list and just kept going until I had to sleep and then would just start the same thing again the next day and then I actually had another round of burnout mm. after the first year and a half so the first year of full time just because I went too hard too soon and that's one of the things I really try and tell people now is that when you turn your passion into your profession, you have no incentive to rest. You just don't want to. You're like, everything I do I love doesn't feel like work and everything I do has results that I can see. So why would I stop? There's absolutely no reason and I don't want to rest and I don't want to exercise and it's so hard to be disciplined with yourself because whatever you do, it has to be sustainable. You mm-hmm. want to last more than a year. I mean, most of us do. Yeah. But that's not going to happen if you go out too fast, too soon and blow up and then you're useless to everyone. And when you are the only one in the business, really, if one of you is out, that's like your whole staff. (laughs) So I'm becoming a lot better at structuring my days now and more structuring my weeks and my years. So everything just used to be a blur. I honestly couldn't tell a Wednesday from a Sunday. Now we have weekdays and weekends again, which is a big change. We have like regular reviews at the end of each month. We know when tax time is, you know, all of those kind of things, just putting things in your calendar. One of the most practical and useful things that I've done in the recovery phase of realizing, oh my God, I've burnt out. What am I going to do? One of the best strategies has been blocking out me time in my calendar with the same importance as a meeting with a distributor or a client or whatever. You need to book in time with yourself. And the only way that I will take myself seriously is if it's treated visually in my calendar, locked in there. And I, you can move it, but I can't delete it. So I have a certain amount of time per week that has to be on exercise or on non-work-related stuff. Even if it's just walk the dog or stare at the wall, I have to put my devices away for that time. I put them on airplane mode and you just block out times with yourself in the week that looks the same as meetings. And that's been super important. As well as running the business, you also have quite a large social media presence yourself with your uh, Instagram and blog Spoonful of Sarah. How do you manage balancing your public profile with your personal life? I think if you really love that whole creative side, which I really do, it's a lot easier. It's not a burden to sort of keep up that kind of profile or that content. And it also, because that has all come about through sharing the story of the business, again, it's something I'm super passionate about. And I've gone in a very, very short time from being not particularly fulfilled and not really having much passion in my life or much of anything other than work to completely transforming into an area that I never would have thought. I have no qualifications. There was, there could have been so much self-doubt and I could have ended up somewhere for 20 years and not realized, but I ended up taking a jump and really realizing there's so much more to life, as I say. (laughs) So I'm really passionate about doing speaking gigs and using that personal profile to push other people in that direction. One of the quotes that I love is, um, doubt kills more dreams than failure ever will. And I want to spread that message. I'm so, so passionate and enthusiastic about sharing that message with especially people who have got an idea, but they're just hovering on the balance. So when you've got a purpose behind your personal profile, I think it makes it a lot easier because you you know what message you want to put out there. It's clear what you're trying to achieve. I randomly developed this audience and then was like, what do I want to do with this? And I was like, this is the message I want to, I want to put out there. And then that's what I do every day. And the other thing is, I think it's really important to share, like, obviously there's a lot of things that we don't share. I think there are a lot of oversharers out there, but I think it's also really important to share. If you are putting yourself out there as a business person and you do have a business profile, it's also important to share the bits that are really difficult as well to show everyone. Like I try when, if I do have a day when I'm a bit run down or a day when the shit's hit the fan and I'm sort of struggling to keep up with myself. I like to share that to show other business owners that it's so easy to portray just the highlights and just look like everything's smashing goals all the time and doing glamorous events. And it's a good platform to portray the things that you want to portray about your life. And if you're really passionate about showing all of that, like the highs and the lows, and just showing that everyone's a normal person, everyone can do it, there's highs and lows for everybody, it becomes a lot easier. 
So matcha maiden started as a green powder and you've been selling that and now you've expanded to include matcha milk bar and some really cool product extensions. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah. So again, in uh, quite a happy accidental business development, Nick and I were traveling in LA to suss out what the new trends were. We also set up a warehouse over there for Matcha Maiden so that we could ship domestically for free within the US. And our now business partner, Mark, who is a big hospitality heavyweight, he's had lots of cafes before, he was traveling at the same time to look at the food trends. So we figured why not do the cafe circuit together while we're doing drinks and food? And we stumbled across the two big trends that were happening at the time, which were matcha drinking and plant-based eating. And then, you know, in trying to unite it and figure out why they were both emerging so strongly, we discovered the Blue Zones research, which are the five areas of the world where people live dramatically longer than anywhere else. And they're these tiny geographical areas, so it's quite unusual sociologically. And one of the things, there's been all these studies on them, and there's quite a few common things that happen in all of those areas that give them that extra longevity. And one of them is plant-based eating. And it's not because of any animal cruelty or any other ethical considerations. It's literally that's just what is sustainable in their areas. And then the blue zone with the most 100-year-olds of anyone is Okinawa in Japan. And their extra longevity is owed to matcha drinking. So we sort of thought, oh my gosh, there's all this research about longevity and sustainability of both human bodies and the planet. And no one's really tapping into that idea. If there are vegan cafes, they're often quite linked in with that animal cruelty, ethical, um, like the heated debate often obscures their message to the mainstream market. So there's not a lot that's appealing beyond people who are already plant-based. And there's really not a lot of matcha cafes either. In fact, there was nothing at the time. There were in the US, but not really in Australia. So we thought, why don't we do a longevity cafe that's based on blue zone eating and is designed in a way that takes all the heat out of the debate, that makes it really appealing to the mainstream, almost in such a way that no one notices that they're eating plant-based until they leave. So we created a vegan egg. We've got lots of amazing innovations. We have nine lattes that aren't coffee, based on obviously my inability to drink coffee. (laughs) We have normal coffee, but we have, you know, nine different superfoods. We've got mushroom lattes, beetroot lattes, blue algae lattes, It's all about just making the plant-based and matcha drinking um, experience really accessible to the mainstream market. And it's obviously very Instagrammable. We had the Hemsworths come in. Like it's just been a crazy, crazy journey. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But that was a a really beautiful way to take what was a majority online business. Now we've got quite a big wholesale distribution, but still it's not a forum where we can connect so directly with our customers, whereas this gave us a physical venue to sort of spread the message further and actually interact with people and do recipe testing and move beyond matcha as well. So uh, a third of the menu is matcha-based. So there's a matcha burger, there's matcha noodles, there's matcha ice cream, matcha pancakes, but then there's also so many other um, health and wellness hacks that we're incorporating into the menu and that allows us to really push the boundaries of food science and innovation with our kitchen staff who are absolutely incredible. So that started again as sort of like a pop-up that we thought we'd do for a couple of months and then it just stayed and that was two years ago. So it's again one of those things where once you open yourself up to the opportunities that are out there and stop being so controlled by fear or by being risk averse you know as a lawyer we're trained to be risk averse to identify risks and then try and not go down that pathway so I really had to rewire my brain to be and I've been surrounded by great people who are already very entrepreneurial to just be like just do it I mean obviously there are risks and you need to know about them and mitigate them but just give something a go it's we're at a time now as well where newness or novelty is like a real bonus being first to market is a real bonus like how perfect the packaging is and everything is not important getting it out there and then doing different iterations Mm. is like how everyone really gets out there not waiting till the perfect moment so we've changed it a million times since we opened and obviously again Nick and I had no experience in running cafes or doing Mm. hospitality um, have an amazing business partner who's so good at that, which is awesome. But still, we're all winging it. None of us have done plant-based before. And it's yeah, just been an absolutely incredible journey. And how did you fund Match Milk Bar? Because it's much more capital intensive than your first business. We've actually been really lucky so far that the Match Maiden journey has been, uh, we broke even in the third month or something and then have been able to keep in the black since then. Just by, again, one of the things I say to people in your growth is, 
grow incrementally, like grow into your bigger self. Don't try and make the jump too much. We've made that mistake quite a few times with going, oh, we can get these for 10 cents if we order 50,000. And you think it's cheaper, but it's not when you only end up using 10% Mm. of them. Mm. So we've been able to grow in a way that we've been able to stay self-funded the whole time. And then we ended up being able to pull out a little bit of money from that to put into the cafe. But because it was a bit experimental and we also thought it might be a pop-up and because we're also all really willing to get our hands dirty and have amazing family and friends, we knocked it together with, you know, 20 grand each. It was a really low wow. low investment because Nick did all the building, you know, had friends come in and help with the painting. Mark already had really great contacts in the hospitality industry to help us with all the ordering and the first sourcing and then I did all the PR and, you know, between us we kind of garnered all our skills or upskilled where we need to. And I think it's just a really good example that you think you have to go all out and spend a million dollars on a fit out. And it's not about that. It's about the experience, about the feeling that you want to create for your customers. And the quote that I say in this all the time is people won't remember what you said or what you did. They'll always remember how you made them feel. Mm. And a million dollar fit out isn't always crucial to them leaving feeling good. Plus also it was really experimental. Two years ago having the idea of a vegan egg was really fun, but who knew if anyone was actually going to come back and eat it again. So we didn't want to risk investing too much and we've then since then obviously spent money on improvements and we've added an extra bathroom and we've improved the kitchen and but it's been a slow process of being able to do that without you know having to get external investment so earlier this year you were accepted into the chobani incubator program can you tell us more about it so chobani is one of those standout companies in the world that you just want to emulate they are um, they call themselves a small company, which with billions of dollars of revenue, I don't <laughs> identify with. But the founder, Humdi, has literally grown the business over the course of 10 years from him being a refugee in New York um, and not being able to find good quality yogurt to being category leader in the whole of the US, just changing the game completely in dairy over there. And his mission is better food for more people. And so it's not limited to yogurt. He's um, Once he mastered the yogurt category, he was like, how can I support other industries that are also creating better food and continue this mission but all together? And rather than investing in smaller companies and taking them on and then expanding sort of the Chobani family range, and then that obviously involves a lot more complexity in manufacturing, mm. which is already quite complex for dairy, he started this incubator program where they take four to five companies each year under their wing for a three to four month period and give you access to all of their experts pretty much. So the CEO, the CFO, the CTO, they come in and look at your manufacturing. They We go through quality control. There's marketing and brand voice. Pretty much just they take you into the cocoon, incubate you <laughs> and help you fill all the gaps of your knowledge or any, you know, any teething pains that you're having in the scale up. They like to take on businesses that have already been around for a little while so you know what your problems are and you know where you want to get to and you're a bit more familiar with the landscape and they just support you and it's absolutely incredible. And then the support, obviously, you graduate from the program but then the support continues after that and you you end up with an amazing, amazing contacts list of people that you can just call, you know, whenever you have a procurement problem or an insurance problem or any kind of issue like that. I think they've had two or three cohorts in New York. They actually have a purpose-built permanent um, building for the incubator program in New York, and this was the first year that they did it in Australia. So they came out in about October last year sort of sussing out the landscape and seeing how it would look different in Australia and what what the small businesses need over here, and we were consulting with them, um, just giving them feedback on how useful a program like this would be because in small business it's really hard to find mentors or courses that are really relevant to your industry and that are comprehensive as well. You can get mm-hmm. consultants in one or two areas, but an all-round analysis of your business health is very difficult to to get. And then they took on seven people, five companies at the beginning of February and just took us under their wing. Uh, So every month we had a full-time week and it was in conjunction with the um, Monash Food Innovation Centre. So they have an amazing facility out in Clayton that has PhD students are all based out of there and they have incredible eye scanning technology and a full supermarket. Like they've got this 
this amazing facility where you walk in and there are screens 3D around you and it's a complete reality 3D mock-up of a supermarket. So you can put your product in and see, you know, what would work. And there's Chinese supermarkets if you're trying to crack a different market. Wow. That's so cool. So cool. And so we just had a full-time week every month for four months and then had the three weeks off to obviously run the businesses but also implement and put everything into practice. So the first week was a marketing and brand identity kind of unit. Um, Then we did all the quality assurance, manufacturing, all the technical stuff. And so it spent a lot of time in the factory and um, looked at, you know, had their lawyers come in to do regulatory stuff and all the regulations you need to comply with. Third week was category thinking, which was all about going into the major retailers. So how the food world divides categories into, I mean, the stuff that it sounds so obvious, but if you haven't worked in a Nestle or a Fonterra, like you don't know that stuff. And if you haven't been in a supermarket, consumers don't know that there are different buyers for each category or where one category finishes and where one starts. So it was really, really useful. And then the fourth week was just a wrap up where um, they took us up to the food service show in Sydney and we did an expo with them. And again, had lots of different workshops with different experts from flavor houses to we had a cooking demo with Chef Mauro from The Independent, who's amazing. The whole senior leadership team made themselves available for us to just pick their brains and it was absolutely invaluable. I feel like I've done a food mini food MBA. I've just filled all the gaps of having no idea what we've been doing really until now. I think the way that I said it to them was you feel like you go from a person with a business to graduating as a business person. Mm -hmm. Like you go through finance modules, you learn to read your books, you learn to know the percentages that you're going to need for each thing and what the average is in your category. All of that fundamental stuff that when you're running blind, it's really hard to actually know whether you're doing well or whether you're doing it right or whether you're hitting the right margins or whether you could even survive in a bigger major retailer context. And they actually took us up to Woolies and went to headquarters where there's like 4,000 people in the Woolworths head office. So just to understand the scale of, you know, what goes on behind the scenes and have all our quality control and all that vetted to make sure that we are actually compliant and all of that stuff has just been incredible. And where were some of your gaps? My legal background meant that all our quality assurance stuff was quite tight. What our biggest gaps were, I think, was in systemizing things. So because we've been so haphazard and quite reactive, we've never actually built the business out from a plan or it's all been like, oh my God, we're still alive. What? Mm. This is amazing. (laughs) Or, oh my God, you want this opportunity? Amazing. We'll do it. It hasn't been like, where do we want to end up? Where do we need to fix things to be able to meet that level of scale next year? There's not been any milestones or signposts or anything. So They've really helped us to figure out, like, if you got a contract here and you had this many units, could your manufacturing uphold that? And no, that was a really big gap. Our supply chain was the one that can completely cover the demand that we have now, Mm. but with no future planning for if we even increase by 10% in volume in the same time frame. So we actually ended up changing contract manufacturers during the time that we were there changing the ingredient sources to people who could actually supply in volume and who had the right quality control so that all of the ingredients would be vetted by the same standards. And like moving contract manufacturers is a massive process, but under their guidance, we were able to find ones that already had the right, you know, if we did get into Coles or Woolies, for example, they already have all the right accreditations for that. So there'd be no secondary upheaval Mm. later on. Another area that we didn't think that we did have much of a gap, we've been, you know, in the back end with manufacturing and everything, did need a little bit of help to scale up and that was amazing. But the area that we've, we think we've been really strong in is marketing and the brand voice and really creating a feeling and a community. The team were amazing. They were really, really affirmative and said, you've done a really good job with it. But one of the things we didn't realise is, the tagline of Chobani is better food for more people. And that's got nothing to do with yogurt, but in one minute you know exactly what the founder's vision is. Yeah. You mm. know what all of the values are for the business. You know that they're going to be quality before anything else. There's not going to be any, you know, cost compromises for we just want to get the bottom dollar. It's like we want the food to be good quality. We want it to be the best quality on the market. And for us I was like, we don't have a tagline. We don't have an elevator pitch if I suddenly got into an elevator and there was a huge investor in there, I would ramble on for an hour about trying to explain what we do. We didn't have those short, sharp 
marketing basics that any marketer would be like, isn't that what you did at the beginning? (laughs) (laughs) But so we ended up formulating one, which is there's so much more to life. So that's our tagline, which really for me, I was like, that is exactly what our philosophy is, is showing people you can feel better and achieve more out of your life through matcha. And then the same thing with the elevator pitch. We actually had to pitch every single session. We had to do our 30-second elevator pitch. And watching the five companies go from, um, um, <laughs> we are uh, green tea, yep, <laughs> to just being bang on smash and it. being able to, yeah, yeah, smash it out and know that we're at 29 seconds. Like, you know, it was amazing. And we had the chance actually to present to the whole of Chobani and do our pitch and they invited media on it was in the last week they had a big demo day and we pitched to people from everywhere and it was amazing because we were all just like I got this we had a performance coach come in we had a speech coach come in you know all of that kind of stuff that just equips you so well to be able to represent your business and do it justice I think that's the thing that we realized there were areas where we're really strong but so many areas where we weren't doing ourselves justice we weren't living up to the a business the size of what we are And they really helped us kind of lift up to that level. Another thing that came out of it, um, interestingly, on the scale thing was learning that they have an individual person for most of the roles that I do during the day day, that's an expert in that area. I was like, oh, my gosh, I've never thought about the departments of our business. I mean, I know vaguely when I'm swapping between doing finance work and doing marketing work, but I never have done a corporate structure for if we did hire, who would we hire? What are the departments? What activities do I even do all day? What does Nick do? What does Ange do? What does mum do? So even though it feels really premature, I'm used to like the first thing I did in M&A in the law firm was always a corporate structure. Like where does everything sit? And I had never done that for us because I'm like, we're not a corporation. (laughs) We're really little. There's a blob for me, a blob for Nick, a blob for mum and a blob for Ange and that's it. (laughs) And they're all green blobs. But I sat down and did a corporate structure of all the departments and separated out every single role and function and then just put whose name was responsible for it, which turned out to be a lot of overlap obviously between Mm -hmm. us. But eventually we'll need to outsource those roles and Mm -hmm. knowing where the delineation of that role is makes it so much easier because then you've already figured out what belongs under that bracket. And so another thing that kind of followed on from that was having an ops guide, which again, we've never systemized anything that we've done. We have no forms or like it's all in our brain. So if one of us suddenly, you know, was knocked out, no one would know what to do. So it's really good to have a contingency plan of just what are your processes, spell out even the most painstakingly obvious things that you do all day and put it in an operations guide so that if you did ever want to take a day off or bring on someone new, it would all be in there. And even just for yourself to be able to look back and know that it's all documented in there, that's so useful to have. And I can imagine that going through that process would have really helped organise your thoughts as well around what you do day to day in the business. Completely, because it it was so disorganised before then and then you wonder why you're burning out and it's because you're holding so many tabs in your head Mm. open all the time to the point where you actually become really unproductive because I mean, even if you write them down, there's so many loose ends all the time. Like I've got to follow up that invoice and I've got to check that insurance and Mm. then did that thing go through and then did the freight get through in the US and then Budapest and then, you know, there's just too many things going on that if you haven't divided them into roles and you don't have some kind of structure, your brain just can't function. Like we put our bodies under pressure that the body's never been designed to hold up to these days. Like the information that we get bombarded with just incidentally during the day and then our business is on top of that, you've got to make it as easy for yourself as you can. Do you have any practical tips from the Chobani experience that people uh, might be able to take away and apply? The best thing that I realised is that help is out there if you ask for it. So the biggest tip would be it's a no unless you ask. Like it's always going to be a no unless you ask, but there's a chance that someone as big as Chobani might actually say yes and help you. I never thought I would be sitting down with, you know, the managing director of Chobani saying, here, here's my Rolodex. I'll call this person for you, this person, this, like, it's so good to have an army of people who can help you because like they've done it before. Why reinvent the wheel? I think you spend so much time thinking I've got to do it all myself. I can't show weakness. I can't ask anyone. I can't, you know, open up to anyone and say, oh, I'm having a shit day or I'm struggling a little bit. Just asking people out there who have that expertise, they are always happy to share it. The other one is like the collegiate nature of the five companies that have gone through this program has been 
so supportive. And when you're in business, it's quite isolating. Like you're on your own all the time. And even the businesses that you help out a little bit, there's so much, we're so guarded about our finances or our suppliers or all that confidential information, which is completely sensible and totally natural. But if you can have a group of businesses that you're comfortable with, that you trust, that you know you can share all that stuff with. Like we had to really dish up our dirt during this program. And at the start, you could see we're all a bit hesitant to share anything and be like, oh, no, 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 I'm good. Like, you know, we're, we're a big company, we're fine. And then just letting go of that ego and being like, mm. actually, we're great at this, but we're really crap at this. And once we all bared it all on the table, after that, we were all so supportive of each other. We were just like, oh, here's my accountant, use them. Or I can see you're struggling in this area. Let's run a workshop together. And we all actually sat down and workshopped each other's businesses during the time in our free time. And the program's finished, but we've got, we've already planned a Tassie trip to go and visit one of the factories to touch base again with that group of companies, because we know each other's businesses. And we all kind of feel like we've invested in each other's businesses. Mm -hmm. Like I care so much about them all doing well now that we all know each other so well. And you can't do it on your own. Like it takes a village. And if you can't hire other people within your own business, just have like a group of trusted individuals because then you're in it together and you never feel alone and you have someone to call up on those crappy days where you're like, oh my God, I'm sinking. I'm just going to close up shop today and go back to my job. (laughs) (laughs) Go back to bed. (laughs) On those days, yeah, on those days you need people. It's so crucial. So we're just going to wrap up with a few final questions. Who inspires you? everyone inspires me. I've actually, I get this question a lot and I've never been one of those people who just has one idol that's just like, yes, Oprah. Also, I mean, obviously Oprah is really inspiring, (laughs) (laughs) but I draw inspiration from everyone around me. I really believe that everyone you meet knows something that you don't, and it's up to you to get that out of them and to, in your interactions, figure out how you can both teach each other something or be inspired by something they do differently to you and not necessarily copy it or even change the way that you are, but just let it open your mind to something new. What makes you happy? Oh, this is a really interesting one. So my life philosophy is seize the yay. So seize the day, but make sure that you're yaying all day. Um, <laughs> Love <but> that. <laughs> and I do a little quote of the day on my Instagram every day, just find a little quote that creates happiness and then share it because I think it's a really happiness is a practice more than something that just hits you. Um, and I think it's something you have to cultivate and work into your life. It's not just like a byproduct that comes when you have all the right ingredients. So I think it's a really subjective thing. And I think it's something that also we get very detached from. And sometimes you ask people if they're happy or not, and they don't know, or you ask people what makes them happy and they don't know. And for the longest time, I didn't know. When I was at the law firm, I didn't know what made me happy because I didn't have any time to do the things just for the pleasure. We don't do anything just for pleasure anymore. We do things that have a goal or an outcome or an end game. And so I've just started this year to go back to noticing what makes me happy that's separate to achieving something Mm. and putting more of that into my life. So I actually had to keep a happiness journal to write down all the things that when I was doing them, I'd be like, oh, I was quite happy when I was doing that. And then look back at the things that recurred the most and then figure out backwards that they were the things that I really enjoyed. So I try and remind people all the time that there's no point in doing this, this whole business thing. There's no point in the hustle unless you do find some joy in it along the way. And it's very easy to forget to do that and then Mm. get to the end of it and be like, what was that all for? So I have a strong happiness practice now where I work in all the things that make me happy. I walk my dog very often. I think being around animals and just how joyous they are over a tiny little twig (laughs) (laughs) brings a lot of joy. I love spending time with my family and friends. Just I love eating. So food is one of my happy places. So enjoying a meal with people who I love and just Chewing the fat, it's my, like, literally and figuratively (laughs) (laughs) is um, something I love doing. And trying to put our phones away and not talk about work is something I really love. I love dancing, which I've always loved. So I've gone back to making time for just, like, a silly hip-hop class every now and then that's got nothing to do with anything and doesn't further any particular goals in my life, but it's just a bit of fun. Yeah. I actually have gone back to really enjoying exercise. I got so out of the habit and thought of it as a waste of time. Like I just was like, it's not 
fixing the business or doing anything productive, so why am I doing it? That I've really been enjoying going to the gym and just putting, blasting some crazy music and, again, having my phone on airplane mode, that's been really good. So what is next for you and what's next for Match Maiden? I have had a really, really big year, as I mentioned before, in such an exciting way. So many amazing things have happened. Obviously, the recent highlight was Vogue. Nick and I are getting married. Um, Congratulations. <laughs> which is really exciting. For the longest time, we've been like, goals, goals, goals. What's next? What's the next thing we can do for the businesses? And having two of them as well makes it really difficult to find any time in between. And so for the first time in ages, I actually don't have a plan for what's next. I think I, I really want to not let this this exciting time pass me by. Mm. And it's so hard to, not to do that. It's so hard to not get so caught up in the business that we forget to even plan anything and then we get to the day and it's like, oh, my God, we've ha- we haven't even been excited about this yet because we haven't let ourselves enjoy it. So the next little while, Perth was my last big speaking gig for a little while and Chobani has been a very intensive chunk of the year. It was like a third of the year. So now that we've finished that, there's a lot of marinating to do. And I feel like if you rush too quickly to put things into practice before you let them settle, we haven't had enough reflection time to think, what does this mean? What direction is the business going to take? And what is our five-year plan? What do we want next? We're sitting on a lot of ideas. There's a lot of stuff for matchmaking in the background that we're like, oh, that could that could be great. There's been, um, with the Chobani resources, we were able to do a lot of NPD, which is new product development because they have so such amazing resources to figure out food techs who could help us with it. And even just being around that kind of innovative environment helps you get the ideas going. But nothing immediately on the horizon. We're just going to sit on it for a little while, let it all marinate um, and get excited about the wedding, which is a big change because usually I'd be like, there's this, 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 plan, this, this, plan, I know. this plan, this plan. <laughs> no yeah. breaking news here. Sorry, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, the breaking news is, oh, my gosh, I might actually take a break. <laughs> That's good. That's good. <laughs> and now we can dig into our matcha chocolate. Yeah. Yes. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to subscribe to our podcast. Follow us on Instagram, lady.brains, and head over to ladybrains.com.au to find out more about our events and other cool things that are happening.